Um, but if we need to do it, in we have to do it. And I see that Facebook is. Yeah, it's it's already saying that it's online, and uh, just wanted to say hello to our community uh, online. But I know that sometimes it takes some extra seconds, so let's just wait another thirty seconds before uh, we officially welcome all of you. And and it, it's a very interesting conversation that uh, I was having backstage with uh, with Calvin. Uh, should I say it Tio or Teo? Uh, how do you pronounce your surname? The first one. Tio. Just just lost a little bit of connection. Could you repeat the, the surname? Uh, the, the, the former. So Tio. Tio. Perfect. Yep, that's right. So uh, we are live, officially live. So welcome everybody to um, the Skillup Valley podcast. Uh, I'm today um, with Calvin Tio, the CEO of Funding Societies. And it's a really a pleasure to welcome you, Calvin. Thanks for making the time. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. So as you know, we always discuss uh, every single week uh, best practices about some of the best tech companies and how they are scaling up um, their fast-growing companies across the world. And today, it's, it's again a pleasure to, to have Calvin with our community, sharing your insights and your lessons as killing funding societies. So could you just give us an overview about who is Calvin and who is uh, funding societies? Sure. So Funding Societies is basically an SME digital financing platform. So we basically give loans to small, medium businesses, and these loans are typically crowdfunded by individuals and or institutions. Uh, similar to uh, Market Invoice Funding Circle in the UK, and there's also an element of cabbage and trade shift like that in the US. Um, so we're really targeting SMEs and that um, as a form of quick alternative financing, and as a form of alternative investments to individuals and institutions. So we were founded in uh, 2015. Currently, we are licensed and operating in three countries in Southeast Asia, Singapore, Indonesia, as well as Malaysia. Um, and that we, over the course of the last uh, three and a half years, four years or so, we have given out a bit more than half a billion dollars in loans, and we have lost about three and a half million USD in terms of uh, default. So, so far, I've been giving uh, the, the, the investors a pretty good return. Um, and that in, in these three and a half years, four years or so, we have sort of raised three rounds of financing. The last round was led by SoftBank Ventures. Um, and the round before in series A was led by Superior Capital. Um, and, and why we started funding societies is really because we, um, it's just to really make a positive impact in societies, right? That uh, SMEs is in, in, especially in emerging market, comprise of a lion's share of uh, GDP growth as well as job creation. Um, and that to, and yet the biggest problem that I have is really financing, especially in emerge, emerging markets. So we were, uh, Raynaud, when Raynaud and I, we met, uh, who is my co-founder, when we met at Harvard Business School, we wanted to just, hey, let's do, now that we are in a position of privilege, let's, um, let's do something to pay back to society, right? And we find that, hey, this is potentially one of the best ways to do it. So, so we started funding societies while doing our, uh, our masters at Harvard Business School in 20, 2014 to 2016. And, and with the, really, the vision to really help SMEs to grow and, and the society, to enrich the societies uh, with financial opportunities. And that's why we call ourselves funding societies. Um, and I think before, before funding societies, um, I come from a professional services background, um, mm -hmm. Malaysia studying in Singapore on a scholarship and then subsequently 
started my career with Accenture, McKinsey, and as well as KKR in private equity. I uh, went to Harvard Business School and then do this because I uh, just wanted to find a way to pay back to societies. Um, and my co-founder comes from a family business background. Um, Michigan undergrad, Michigan master's, family business, Harvard Business School, and this. Got it. Amazing. Congrats for uh, the track record. And maybe I start with a, a kind of an interesting question uh, that maybe you already got it in the past, which is um, sometimes people that come from a professional services background need to unlearn a lot of things and learn new ones operating companies. So I, I'm saying this because I faced it myself. So, um, and it's very that connection is is not very good today but um, uh, I'm not sure if you got all or hold that I was saying I was just saying that I faced it myself coming from a professional services background and sometimes it's difficult to change our mindset for the operating side of the business. I was asking if you uh, felt the same uh, difficulty and how did you overlap it? I think at that point in time, I, I did not feel the change as much um, in all candor, primarily because um, I think throughout my career, I've tried to anger myself towards um, more operations. So while in in say McKinsey or management consulting, everyone wants to do the cool stuff, i.e. strategy, right? And I find that, hey, since everyone can do the cool stuff, I want to do more than what others can do. So I basically spent half my consulting life in operations execution. The not so sexy stuff is really important. Um, and then subsequently I realized that, hey, to, to be a real business leader, I probably need to manage the board, manage, think about investment. That's why I moved to KKR, um, KKR Capstone. So the transition, I think, was, was fairly, fairly smooth. But I think, Perhaps two points to highlight. I think on high side, when I look back, I realized that um, I've been very fortunate to have a team that uh, didn't mind my terrible leadership. So, <laughs> so I have a team at that point in time as well. And then there, are, there were a lot of things that I could do. Um, and that moving forward as the company scales up to currently about 350 people, um, the, the jump towards that there was a need to upgrade, constantly upgrade myself can becomes more and more acute and apparent. Um, so I think in short, the transition was okay for me, but probably terrible for my team. Um, and over time, I think I was to continuously learn and improve. And, and uh, this is what I'm trying to do as well. Yeah. We, we were talking uh, before starting on uh, it, <laughs> the mission see the leadership for... Uh, for each stage uh, of the of the growth of the company, and at the same time to assure execution and assuring execution, it's by repeating a lot. What is the mission? What is the vision? What are the priorities? What are the values of the company? What is the culture? Um, so, and this this makes us very uncomfortable to be in this position because uh, sometimes when we when we see something that must need to 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 be fixed, we tend to go there and just solve what is not working out instead of just influencing one of the members of the leadership team saying, what do you think about this? Uh, what about if we do this? What's your opinion about how to solve this problem? So 
and, and you were sharing something very interesting that maybe you can repeat that sometimes in the short term um, you can go there and fix, but uh, as, as, uh, if it doesn't become a, a long-term uh, solution. Sure. I think the, so if the company is scaling fast enough, what happens is oftentimes um, the teams will not grow. Oftentimes will, it's hard for the teams to keep up with the company's growth. Because once you hit a tipping point, the market takes over, the company just scales, right? And then yeah. um, the organization oftentimes grow fast, grows faster than, a, than, than the existing team. Um, in that, and, and as the leader, chances are you're going to be the best salesperson or best business development person. And to keep up, to make sure that the company continues to be able to serve the growth, you kind of face a tension in terms of, hey, should I give up this growth? Or should I try to spend time delegating to a team, coaching to a team, help them to grow? To scale up so that they can they can meet this demand, right? And um, and I'm speaking for as as someone not who I'm not speaking as someone who knows it all. I'm speaking as as someone who has made that mistake and trying to improve it and do it better the next time. Which is that um, to to fulfill certain level of say venture cap like VC demands or market demands. What happens is that we face a tension about hey, I either give up this growth or I slow down the growth and try to coach my team to do it. So either I do it myself, but at the same time, I will kill myself in the longer term or I slow down the growth, give up the growth or train up the team to do that, right? And, and I think that, of course, the, the theory is that, hey, you should always train up your team so that it's a scalable business. Uh, but the truth is that sometimes market realities, the timing, the opportunity of market does not allow you to do that. Um, so in this case, we face a situation whereby, hey, I would just have to think up more and more, potentially more than what, and, and eventually hit a tipping point whereby I just can't manage as much. And, and I was debating within my team about how should we address this, right? Because market opportunity versus scalability in the future, short-term market opportunity versus long-term future growth, how should we balance it? Um, and the, the Buddha's middle path or the solution that we came up with was that, yes, in the short term, we may need to chase opportunity and the leaders may have to take up more than what a group CEO probably should be doing. So just as to feel the, and meet those demands, but we should always do it with, uh, with a keen, keen sense or keen awareness that, hey, we, whenever we pass that hump, we should quickly, quickly clear down, uh, train up the team. And so it's similar to like, just as technology, we have tech debt. I genuinely believe that there's such thing as organization debt as well, and we can't accumulate it for too long. Um, so at least we, that's how we're thinking about it, that um, short term is fine to accumulate some debt because if you're not accumulating debt, you're not growing fast enough. Um, but longer term, we need to make sure that we always uh, be deliberate and thoughtful in terms of clearing them. Love that expression, no? organizational uh, debt. Definitely a new one. It's uh, valuable for a quote <laughs> about this uh, episode and, and this conversation. And um, uh, what about uh, one of your investors is very well known for putting together a book called Measure uh, What Matters, uh, John Doerr. Um, sorry, it's not one of our investors. I'm, I'm confusing. It's from uh, Leonard Perkins. Um, so, but measure what matters. Do you apply uh, OKRs in, in your business? Yes, we, we do actually. I think talking about investors, they, are, they actually gave us, at different stages of the company, they gave different advice in all candor. So when Sequoia came in in 2016 for our Series A, literally one year after we were launched. Um, when, they clo when we closed around, they only gave two advice. Um, and 
and it's still very applicable today, right? The first advice was build culture. And the second advice was uh, tell these boys, AKA us, to not grow too fast in a lending business. Uh, grow sustainably, not grow aggressively. And I think these two values remains, uh, or these two focus remains very critical. Um, I think came, before we close series B, I think then the questions came, came to, hey, now that we have culture and whatnot, um, how can we think about OKRs? How can we manage a team as the company scales up bigger and bigger, right? So, so we actually implemented OKR in 2017. Uh, it, it took some time to actually educate the team because it's still a relatively new concept in Southeast Asia. And even then, there are many interpretations of how should you implement an OKR as well. Is it oftentimes companies uh, see it as a form of performance, manage, uh, performance measurement. But at the same time, the truth is that if it becomes a performance measure, then no one is going to to have moonshots, right? Which is what OKR is meant to be, right? That if you're achieving most of your target, your key results, you're not stretching uh, enough. So, so we actually went through a three, six months period to just educate the team, share, test out, run a few cycles of doing it, right? And I think a few key, few key learnings, to, uh, we went through a few stages, right? The first stage was just, hey, introducing OKR so that people start writing their OKRs, right? Or at least, uh, Start appreciating a bit, right? I think that was a very was stage one of what we did, and we deliberately run monthly OKRs, which is crazy. We know that it's not sustainable. We are spending too much planning, but we want, we deliberately do it so that um, we know that we can we'll make mistakes in terms of implementation, and we can quickly learn from it. So we did started from just hey, people write your OKRs, and then we critique to see what whether it makes sense or not. Hey, is that is the KR? Is it really KRs? Um, do we have too many of them? and so forth, right? So it's still best practice. So that was the first phase, right? The second phase was that, how can we make sure that the different leaders speak to each other to iron out the interdependencies themselves? Um, because sometimes right. we realize that every organization just runs, every team just runs themselves, come with the OKRs that don't gel with each other. That, hey, to execute this, I need tax support, but hey, it's not on tax, uh, tax, tax OKR, so end up we cannot achieve that. So the second, that was what we did for the second, second phase, right? And the third phase was basically just almost autopilot, right? That, hey, the team just do it themselves um, almost automatically because they see that the tool is being useful to run or to run their team to achieve the results, right? So we went through that three phases, right? And, and in all candor, as new leaders come in, we kind of have to repeat some of this phase again and again uh, by something that we've implemented to manage um, the team across all three countries. Very, very good. And this is usually also uh, one of the challenges that creates a lot of chaos in the organization. Uh, and that's what we talk about, uh, matrix, uh, matrix organizations and the squads, etc., which is to um, uh, aggregate or converge the OKRs for each of the teams, for the company and for the regions. Um, so I'm, I'm just thinking about uh, having a squad uh, with an STR, an account executive, and uh, someone from customer success uh, in the team. Uh, and some of them are leading, are maybe led by a country manager and the customer success advocate is led by the VP of customer success and the sales guys are led by the head of sales or the sales manager or whatever it is. So which means that it is a lot of complexity to understand who should I report to and what should be my and OKRs. So how do you solve this mess of having free markets and different teams um, and maybe also the remote part of it, right? Because they are not all in the same location. 
I think we are we are going through stages of evolution. I think for now, so if I just take a step back, it, we are basically structured based on country country functions as well as regional functions. Um, mm-hmm. Primarily because SME financing or small medium business financing is a very localized business from a lo- from a regulation from a culture from an economic development credit risk customer segment so and so forth. It's a very localized business, right? So we kind of for functions that are very much local related or local content heavy. We kind of have a structure as a local team, and then functions that are not so local content heavy, we we drive it regionally. So, example local functions would be local sales, local marketing, local credit, uh, credit risk management, management, local customer service, and then regional teams would be uh, our data science, our engineering, our tech, uh, our product, um, finance, legal, so and so forth. Right, that cuts across our branding. That cuts across regionally. Right, I think. We are at a phase of, hey, in countries are working very well in terms of their OKRs. Mm-hmm. Uh, the group level functions are working are, are not working that well, and we are trying to reconcile that. Um, and some of the things that we have done so far, and, and at least it's a work in progress, is that since about two years ago, we have been running um, quarterly or four monthly leadership offsite. So we fly all the leaderships into the same country. To, to just discuss about topics, to align about things, right? So that even for re- regional functions and a certain level of regularity and, uh, and, and social relationship to really drive the conversations, right? Um, and starting from one year ago, we started flying in group leadership uh, on a monthly basis um, to, to meet each other, right? Because so that we can be even more agile in terms of discussions, in terms of, of debate or whatnot. Um, and that, it, that helps a lot in terms of driving alignment at a regional level. Um, but I do think that there's still, still, be, still be quite a lot of things that we need to do to better um, align and develop common understanding for, for functions that cut across different countries um, and, and have a more educated discussions of decisions um, in terms of prioritizations or OKRs. So, so group level is still a work in progress you know, after, even after three and a half years, four years in the business. Got it. And, um... Yeah, that's that's a good point. And usually, I always get a lot of questions. What should be the different meeting rhythms that I should put in place in order to review those OKRs? Because it's good to define what is the direction, but if we are not tracking and taking decisions on the data that we are collecting and what we are learning, um, we again, we are losing a great opportunity of moving faster and moving in a much more effective way. So how do you kind of set up those meetings and what are the meetings maybe that you have today? So daily adults, weekly meetings, all and So how, how does it work in your organization? So I think that we have, a, if I just think from top to bottom, uh, I think, so we have a weekly call, group leadership call um, on a Monday evening. So what happens is that, um, and the group leadership comprises of country heads as well, uh, which is basically lo- responsible for local fun- each of the local countries, as well as regional function, functional heads. That includes um, engineering, product, data, finance, HR, as well as my chief of staff, right? Um, so as a, as, a, as a weekly call. And then subsequently within each of the offices, what we do, we, are, we basically have two, three types of meeting for different reasons. So on a Monday morning, we have a weekly check-in that lasts for uh, the, about for 40 minutes, primarily as a forum for, for corporate discourse to drive thinking and conversations as a group um, to, to really align uh, 
to really align directions, to really reinstill messages, culture, announcements, so and so forth, which is about 40 minutes um, every, every Monday. Um, and then on, and on a weekly basis, we'll have the country heads leadership meetings whereby the key functional heads within each of the countries will just come together for discussions for about two hours or so in a, on a Monday morning, a Monday afternoon. Um, and then on the office level, on a monthly basis, we, also, we basically have a monthly town hall for each of the office um, that talks about um, uh, basically the updates in terms of how we're performing and in terms of our KPIs for that particular month. Um, one, one learning that we have done was that over time, we realized that it's, going, it's a lot of content to cover on a monthly basis for both business and technology. Mm-hmm. And you end up with the, the folks who are uh, arranged to speak at the end of the town hall has very little time. So over time, we kind of stagger it to have um, one month on business town hall, one month on tech town hall, one month on business town hall, one month on tech town hall, so that the group level functions will have su- sufficient level of exposure and, and coverage to, so that our, the folks know where are we heading for, for in terms of technology and can build a certain level of alignment between business and technology, right? So, so that's something that we do um, as an organization. I think personally, I do speak to catch up with my direct reports on a one-on-one basis every two every two weeks, mm-hmm. um, as well as selected or ad hoc skip level meetings, um, just so that people feel feel that I'm accessible, even though I'm not always available, and also so that I can triangulate and see whether information has been cascaded down, or what is the temperature of the team, um, how can we address uh, it as a as an organization. Amazing. And you said that the town hall happens every month? That's what you said? Yeah. First week of the month. Or first Friday, first, first Friday of the month. Got it. That's, that's very good. And in, uh, I know that there are some companies who are doing a town hall almost every week. Um, what do you think about it? Too much? I, I do think it's quite, quite a bit. I guess it depends on what they use for town hall. Um, and that and how long is each town hall, right? I guess if you're doing it on a weekly basis and if all information is automated, it almost serves like a weekly check-in that we have for us. Um, and that if the company, if the, if, the, if the environment is that fast changing, then a weekly town hall does help the company to be a lot more agile. Um, I think for our case, because some of the execution pieces requires time to execute. So I think that a monthly cadence, actually in, more, in reality, a two monthly cadence that we're currently doing now if you're just looking at business, 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 or tech, 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 um, it's perhaps, it's, it's a pretty comfortable or pretty um, meaningful uh, cadence for us because you do want to reach a situation whereby, hey, you have, a, you have a bi-weekly or you have a monthly town hall and you have nothing to talk about because what you talked about last time has not been fully executed and there's nothing to discuss. So I think for fast-moving environment, um, it, it's probably something that the company would need. Uh, but for us, probably it's not so useful. Got it. And, um, and usually, what, what are some of the um, issues that you have in terms of cross-functional uh, topics that are not being properly communicated? And uh, you were talking about alignment before. So how, how do you drive this alignment across all functions and across all regions? I think this uh, regional alignment, the most, the most frequent um, area of, of misalignment is oftentimes technology prioritization, right? Because in Southeast Asia, there are, there aren't that many engineers, tech resources of, uh, or tech team is oftentimes very limited. Um, and that for each of the country, there are different priorities. How do we make sure that we prioritize um, based 
for maximum impact. Um, I don't think we are, I think this is still a work in progress for us, but one of the key learnings that we have done is that we basically came up with a framework in terms of, hey, what are the key things will be definitely prioritized upwards? What are the categories of topics? Um, and so how we look at it is anything that's regulatory related, we almost, it will skip the queue, we'll just go all, all the way up. Anything yeah. that's security related, we'll skip the queue, we'll go all the way up. Um, any bugs or mission critical functions, we'll skip the queue, we'll go all the way up. And then any strategic partnerships that's time sensitive, um, what we call wild cards, will basically be prioritized upward first. Um, what happens is that then there are 50-60% of the remit of task capacity that we can use it for more discretionary items. And for those items, we make sure that um, the product managers basically work with the business teams to, to really quantify the impact or has clarity on the impacts and, 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 and really spec it out so that we have clarity in terms of how much time and, and or man hours or energy that we need to put into to to, to develop that piece, right? And then we basically have a, we have a voting sheet whereby each function, each country heads will be able, or as well as selected functions, will be able to vote um, for what is important for the organization. Um, and my co-founder and I basically search an intermediary to basically moderate the overall voting so that we, we, we achieve global optima instead of local optima. So that's a process that we're doing. Um, it sounds straightforward in theory, but when we actually execute it, Sometimes it can be right. quite complex, or sometimes can be um, can be quite quite ambiguous because um, the impact as well as uh, effort quantification sometimes is not that straightforward, um, and that that will require. And when that happens, to a large extent, really depends on the trust and the informal relationship that we have built with each other to to for, for us as leaders to make a call, right? So if if we create an environment where there's pretty hot, where it's pretty hostile, where it's, there's a lot of adverse uh, political undercurrent that it comes across as, hey, I'm doing prioritizing, prioritizing this because we are favoring someone over the other. Um, and that's something that we try to kill off within the organizations. We have a whole core value, it's called no politics, no asshole, right? Um, <laughs> that actively kill off. So that level of trust helps us to basically make a call that, hey, this is the best way to optimize for the company. Um, let's go with this. This is a, um, a, a very good point. So when you need to take a decision without, um, how, how can I say, uh, reliable data or old information that you need to take this decision. And in scale-ups and, and startups, this happens, um, I would say, every single hour or half an hour. Uh, so we, which, which sometimes create the temptation of, as we don't know what is the right decision, uh, maybe it's better to ask uh, the CEO uh, what we should do in this situation. And then you have different teams and uh, different people, even if you just have your direct report, let's imagine that just your leadership team is waiting for your decision because they don't have uh, a very good overview or very good data to take uh, a decision, not just because they don't want to take a decision, they don't know what decision to take. And of course, they, want, they don't know what decision to take, they would want to protect themselves or protect the business. Sometimes it's not even uh, taking care of themselves and they want to go to the CEO to brainstorm. So if they all do this every single day, you don't have enough time to do your um, own job. So how do you create the trust and the confidence that maybe they can take the wrong decision and how do we avoid this uh, dependency over you? I think that over time we are trying to 
been better and better in terms of quantifying the impact as well as the resource the, or the, the energy that's required or the mandates that's required to build certain things, right? And in all candor, currently it's still a bit of a work in progress whereby um, 80% of the time, it is quite obvious why it's more important than the others. It is right. 20% of the time that it's not that, hey, I'll need to come in or Raynaud needs to come in as a tiebreaker in terms of what to prioritize or not, right? So I, I think it is... To us, it's a, it's a, it's a journey. When, you, when we first started off this prioritization progress, process, the truth is that 50% of the time we need to come in. So over time, as people become more used to and, and we build better clarity in terms of trade-offs, um, it becomes 80% and hopefully at some point we become 90% and eventually we can be out of the process. Um, but I think that is, in, in all Canada, it's a bit of a journey and we're still trying to work towards um, full, full, direct, full autonomy or full... Um, Thought leadership within the, the, the existing teams. Yeah. And just to give a, a little bit more of clarity of what we are discussing to, to the audience and to the community uh, in practical terms, uh, and I was in a meeting like this uh, one or two weeks ago, uh, you are saying that your main focus is international sales and going up to enterprise, and you are selling much more to SMB. And then you realize that this is your target for your most mature markets, your domestic markets. And for international markets, you need maybe to start in a tier three uh, kind of customer. So, and this of course creates tension across who should I hire first, the international people or the national people? Uh, who, what should I uh, ship first in terms of products, the international features or the national features? And um, again, if we go more international, the revenues numbers can go a little bit slower uh, because we are not so well known. But at the same time, if we don't grow internationally, we would not be able to scale in the long term. So this is the kind of discussions that we might have in a leadership team. And then imagine that each of the leaders of each department are also thinking that they are working on the most important thing uh, of the company. So uh, as a CEO, this can be very overwhelming. Yeah, I think the, to the extent possible, we kind of set rules or frameworks, right? So just now I mentioned that this, this, there's different categories of tasks that we can prioritize. Um, the truth is that when it comes, another lens that we can look at it is that if you are sick, if, if within six months you're going to fundraise, guess what? You're probably going to prioritize the local business first because it will give you the immediate numbers. And Correct. say if you just fundraise, guess what? You're going to prioritize the foreign business, international business because you have the wrong way to, to build that business up, right? So... I think that as long as the leader gives enough context of why the trade-offs are made or to the extent possible set the rules of the trade-off, I think that's fine. I think so far, inherently with the rules of trade-off that we have set is that anything relates to regulations will go up. Anything that's related to security will go up because both relates to existential risks or existential topics. Um, and when it comes to strategic partnership, it is a way for us to drive growth and therefore it's a wild card that we'll prioritize. Maybe when it comes to as comes comes to it will come to some point whereby the wild card is no longer partnerships, but what will drive growth is say like you say international business, new countries or new products. Then that will become a form of wild card. And the rule of trade-offs that we inherently set is what's the impact versus um, versus uh, energy that's needed to put that in. Um, for now, it works for us, but I would think that if we have this conversation six months from now, I'm able more evolved and refined view than, than what I have now. 
So uh, as you said before, you have uh, amazing investors um, that believe in your company and that have been funding uh, the journey uh, and helping you, of course, to also increase the, the value of the company uh, and on the execution uh, level. So, um, and we are talking about names as Sequoia and SoftBank, uh, as you said uh, before, what were your key lessons or key learning points um, in terms of fundraising and maybe kind of compare, comparison or comparing uh, the Series A and the Series B rounds? I think, so in all candor, we have been extremely fortunate in, in the last three rounds of fundraising whereby, um, whereby we did not have to meet more than three investors to actually go get the terms that we need. Um, especially in Southeast Asia where, where there's what they call the valley of death. So in mm -hmm. Southeast Asia, the venture capital industry is so new such that there aren't that many funds and, um, and if, you, if, you, if you miss your shot, that's it, right? So, so we're extremely fortunate in our, last, in our fundraising. So what our, some of our lessons may not be necessarily applicable to, to everyone, but I think one thing that turns out to be quite helpful was to really have, a, have the end in mind even before fundraising, right? I genuinely believe that the outcome of fundraising has already been decided even before you enter into the investment committee meeting. That the outcome is already decided because you, can, you, you need to create an environment and the conditions whereby the, the logical answer for the VCs towards you is a yes, right? And, mm -hmm. and what do I mean by that? Is to basically find out, hey, if I mean, when after, right after our seat round, what we did was that we immediately find out what does it take to raise Series A and we basically brought a whole leadership team together to brainstorm how to work towards that. So that by the time we raise Series A, we have all the ingredients that, is, that the investors are really look, would look out for in terms of evaluating a deal like this. Um, and, and the same applies for Series B, right? That, hey, that um, we know a Series B investor will look out for A, B, C, D, E. By then, we have overachieved in all ABCDE, the only logical answer for the person to, to respond to us is to invest in it. So, so that turns out to be a very important lesson um, for us, uh, or at least very important principle for us. But moving forward, the truth is that what, is, what does it take to raise Series C or Series D becomes mm -hmm. gradually less clear because um, in the last few years, Southeast Asia benefit from the fact that it is following, say, US or is trailing behind China. So we kind of can predict, we can kind of, kind of predict what will come in the future because mm -hmm. it has happened in the US, Europe, and China. I think Southeast Asia is at a turning point whereby we are kind of out innovating or at least localizing um, the various proven business model overseas to the local context, context in a large extent. One example is uh, Grab and Gojek, right? They, they come from, they basically started as a copy and paste from say, from the ride-sharing apps in the US, Uber and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But now they've kind of evolved as a super app, which is kind of a different beast by itself, um, even, uh, even different from compared to what their predecessors have been in say US and Europe, right? Similarly, for us, we're kind of going through that crossroad of evolving beyond what, uh, beyond just copying what, other, what has worked overseas to something that's new. And therefore the matrix towards um, what will raise a series, successful series C and successful D series D will, will become different as well. And, um, and therefore, the ability for us to constantly keep ahead in terms of what it takes to raise the next round um, becomes harder, but also becomes even more important um, in that case. 
Very good points. And and what were the main milestones in terms of the Series A and the Series B that you needed to achieve? And in your mind, what are the key milestones that you need to prove in the next stage for, let's say, Series C? Sure, at least how we, how we thought about it when we were in Series A was that um, in our space, given that we are in SME financing, given that we are in... Uh, high volume, low margin business. Uh, when in, before Series A, we were only in one country, Singapore. And we realized that to find investors to be willing to invest in us, they need to be able to see that uh, the size of market is meaningful enough. And therefore, within six months of launching in, launching in Singapore, we needed a crazy decision of launching into Indonesia. And at mm -hmm. that time, Rima and I were still studying in the US, right? We're still doing our MBA at Harvard, right? So, um, so it was a crazy... It was a decision that many has considered uh, foolish or, or insane at that point in time. But we did that because of our fundamental thesis that no Series A investor or no Tier 1 investor is going to invest in a company that is only in Singapore because Singapore has only a population. Um, and, and it turns out our thesis was right, that we, we, will manage, we managed to raise Series A from Sequoia because, in their words, because we are aggressive in expansion but conservative in terms of risk management and compliance. So our early success of Indonesia brought them, uh, gave them confidence to actually invest in us, um, even though we were kind of late plumber in the industry. Um, so that was the key milestones that was critical for our Series A race. I think for Series B race, the key milestone was that we became a regional market leader. Um, at that point in time, we were late in, as I shared just now, we were late in the market. Um, the earliest year has been has, was started two years ahead of us. Uh, we were just playing catching up, right? Uh, to become a, a, to, to raise a good series from a tier one um, in, investor, we needed to be not just a good player, but we needed to be a market leader. So, so literally, we we doubled down in terms of execution, and we managed to overtake all early players to become a market leader. Um, and that allows us to win uh, SoftBank. But I think not just winning by the top line but also build actually real competencies that allow us to scale and continuously win in the longer term, not just by taking more risks, but by just being better. Um, so that allows us to close to, to win uh, SoftBank's investment in, in 2018, uh, during April. Um, at least our view of, of Series C, um, and we have not raised it, yet, so we are just guessing. Yeah. Currently, we are about four times or five times of the size of our closest competitor. Um, I think our goal is to become not just not, not just as a as a strong SME financing company, but really oh, sorry, as not, not just as number one in terms of peer-to-peer -peer lending or uh, peer-to-business lending, but really to start measure ourselves as a as a meaningful player in terms of overall SME financing as a whole in Southeast Asia. Um, how can we uh, how can we serve say one percent of the whole market? Um, instead of just being comparing ourselves against other peers, how can we compare ourselves against all financing institutions? So that's one. I think number two is that I think the regional expansion piece remains critical because our vision, fundamental vision is to become the biggest SME digital financing platform in whole Southeast Asia. So the continuous expansion is critical for us. I think the technology investments as well as risk investments, I think that's critical because I think that's what allows us to, because in, a, in our business, risk scales disproportionately with scale. So the more, the, the bigger we scale, the more likely we will just go, uh, just suddenly uh, explode. 
And therefore, the need for us to actually step up in terms of compliance, in terms of governance, in terms of technology, in terms of portfolio risk management, so and so forth becomes higher. So showing how we have built competency to manage that kind of scale, I think, becomes critical. And finally, something that may be counterintuitive that not everyone will agree with me is that we do aim to achieve profitability um, in the near future as we raise Series C or, or after we close Series or before or after we close near in, in the near future because I do think that the irrational exuberance of growth obsessed but no path to prof but startups with no path to profitability I do think that the patience will run thin um, in the near future. The truth is that we have started seeing signs of that happening in China with uh, in quarter four last year. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it starts spreading to the rest of the rest of the regions. Uh, and I, therefore, building a real sustainable business with real profit, not just um, earning um, money, I think that's critical, um, while not sacrificing growth. Um, so that's something that we are trying to work towards. I'm not sure if we can, if we can, but I think that's quite critical. Very good point. So I think it's almost a, a doctorate uh, on fundraising in a very simple term. So which shows that uh, you really know uh, how to do it. And um, yeah, we are coming to an end of uh, this session. Uh, I feel that it's always so much more to be covered, uh, but that, that's the time and the resources that we have <laughs> to allocate. And uh, I would like to close the show by asking you um, one of our favorite questions in the show, which is if you had the opportunity to meet Calvin uh, four years uh, ago, uh, what would you tell him? So what kind of advice, what would be the number one uh, thing that you would tell him? The, I think the number one, so there are a lot of lessons, mistakes and lessons that we have learned along the way, but one that I feel people know it, but still make the same mistake over and over again. <laughs> That's a good one. The part about raising the bar and hiring up sooner. Um, so we are kind of at a, at a, at a juncture whereby we are trying to hire not just the best in Singapore, not just the best in Southeast Asia, but best globally, right? And that the whole, and, and I think when we speak to Sequoia, some, they were commenting that we are doing this upgrading of team a lot earlier than the other startups. But I do think that we, even then, I think we are still late. Mm -hmm. um, I, think, I wish we have done that a lot earlier. And I think the key lesson is that we should, even as we are in Series B, we should be hiring someone for Series D, right? Um, that someone who can, to the extent possible, of course, um, start some really hiring for the future in terms instead of hiring for the current. It's something that we always knew. We hired, we talked to the team that hey, as and when the organization outgrows you, we should uh, we should have the humility to hire someone to whom we report to, including myself, right? And if if I can't lead a company, happy to hire a group uh, professional CEO and I report to him, and that's perfectly fine. Um, but I think that oftentimes we know it, but we still do it too late. So I think a key lesson is that if you think that you need to hire, you need to do that in nine months from now, like kind of do it now. So you're probably overestimating the time, the runway that you have in the current team. Um, and you need to also start investing into your team to see how can you lengthen that runway um, sooner than, than wait for six months time or, or nine months time. I think that balance of 
that, that, that forward-thinkingness uh, in terms of hiring up faster as well as investing into your team to extend that runway, I think that's something that's actually absolutely critical. So wish I'd done that earlier, even though I knew it <laughs> beforehand. I never do this, but uh, I just need to ask the opposite question. So there are a lot of CEOs who have the fear of hiring too early and someone who is too strategic. That in, and sometimes what you need is someone who is more hands-on who makes things happen because you don't have yet all the resources to build a team that this person is used to have. So how do we avoid this mistake uh, applying your key lesson, which is uh, upgrade your team as soon as possible and always hire for the next 12 months at least, and if possible, 24 months? I think that if you are hiring for 24 months ahead, it doesn't mean that you're hiring someone who cannot be meaningful right now, right? I think that that person yeah. must be able to be meaningful right now as well. Of course, the overlap of that band diagram between current and future sometimes is quite limited. But I think having that, that real awareness, not just as a hate knowledge somewhere, but actual real awareness and deliberation, I think that's really important. Because if I've done, if I've that deliberation, what I would do, do six months ago or nine months ago, is that if I would actually deliberately time for me to start networking for folks of my future hires, right? Start build relationship with that because when the time comes, hey, I've re- I have a whole, I have a whole uh, network or whole group of folks that I can just hire up instead of having to use headhunters and and hire and search for now, right? So, so I think that awareness itself can be quite quite needle moving. Um, I hope I will not make the same mistakes again, but um, yeah, well, that's that's life, I guess. That's a very good one and a very good way of closing the show. Calvin, thank you so much for joining us today and, uh, and good luck uh, with funding societies. Uh, looking forward to having you back uh, when you raise or when you achieve the next milestones, even more important than raising uh, funds and profitability. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I just wanted to say thank you also to our community uh, for attending live or for just seeing the recording after this. You can watch these conversations with top leaders across the world at scaleupvalley.com slash community. So 60 plus episodes uh, around scaling product, engineering, uh, sales, marketing, and also CEO interviews like uh, this one. So thank you so much and see you next week. Thanks for joining.